Welcome, conversations that highlight fascinating ways people are impacting the lives of those who are vulnerable. Impact Conversations with Don Mansky. This Impact Conversation is brought to you by Made for Freedom, the social enterprise with products made by survivors of human trafficking and marginalization. Made for Freedom is fighting human trafficking with style. Hi, welcome to Impact Conversations. Over the past several years, I've had the opportunity to attend conferences across the country and meet some amazing people doing fascinating things as they help empower marginalized populations, alleviate poverty, prevent human trafficking, and come alongside some of the most vulnerable people in our world. I'm Don Mansky, and our conversation today is with Amy Joy. Amy is an author and international public speaker on human trafficking awareness, childhood abuse, and dissociative disorders. She is a subject matter expert in domestic sex trafficking and dissociative identity disorder, a trauma-related diagnosis. She is also the author of Human Trafficking 101, Stories, Stats, and Solutions, a book that has become a reference guide for law enforcement, educators, and healthcare providers. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so good to see you again, even if it's virtually. <laughs> exactly. It has been a while. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. I think I think we met originally up at a that conference in Chicago where you got a crossbody bag. I did. <laughs> and several more after that. And then figured out what they actually do. So and then yeah. figured out they were reversible. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> Uh, so, Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I, um, I didn't even know that you, I don't even know that I realized you were one of the speakers when we first met, and we've had several conversations. And then you, I saw you, and you were like getting ready for one of your presentations, and I was like, oh, she's one of the speakers, and <laughs> and then you shared a little bit about what you do and some of the things that you help people understand. And so, I'm just, I'm thrilled to have you today. Um, yeah, well, I'm so happy to be here. So, you know, well, you know, virtually again. So <laughs> it's exactly. so odd because it's, you know, we're so used to being in person with everybody and at these conferences. It's um, been a very big shift mentally, I think, to to do these, you know, virtual meetings, but um, but a really mm-hmm. great way to stay connected, I think. So it's it's good. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little about your background and how did you, how did you become an expert in this area? (laughs) Okay. So, uh, back in about 2011 ish, um, I attended a women's conference. So, um, I really had no grip on what human trafficking was. Um, I, you know, I kept hearing it equated with slavery, human trafficking and slavery. And I really, uh, I thought, well, this isn't our issue. You know, we don't have this here in the U S so what is, you know, the deal. Um, but I attended a women's conference and, and pretty much it was just to get away for the weekend. I had, uh, just gotten divorced. I was a newly, you know, single mom, two little kids. I was like, I'm just going to go away. Uh, for the weekend, and I got up there to um, this retreat center in northern Michigan, and uh, the whole weekend was themed around human trafficking, uh, and I didn't go. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm not going to go listen to this missionary. I'm going to go to divorce care, you know, because um, that's just where I was at in my life. Um, at that point, I was actually in the middle of my social work program um, at U of M, and 
again, I still really didn't have a concept of what this was. And I thought, well, maybe just for cultural competence, I'll, I'll go and find out, you know, what this is. So I, I left the divorce care class and I went back to this main auditorium and the missionary there was speaking about human trafficking and what it looked like here in the U.S. And um, she was talking my life. Um, it was what I knew. I just, I didn't know it had been defined. <laughs> I didn't know there were laws surrounding this kind of thing. Um, so when we were talking about human trafficking. I was, I had no idea, you know, I'm like, this is Asia's problem, India's problem. Um, all of a sudden it was my problem. Right. Um, and we all have sort of those pivotal moments in our life where things just drastically change direction. And, and that was one of the biggest ones in my life. Um, and after realizing sort of everything kind of fell apart for me after that weekend um, and then started to build back up uh, because I realized I couldn't go on knowing this information and knowing that I had this connection to this information um, the way that I did and not do something about it. Uh, right. But I had no idea what to do about it. <laughs> so yeah. um, like some of my other colleagues, I am a giant nerd. Um, so <laughs> my first go-to when I get a problem is to research. So I went home and I researched everything I could find on human trafficking globally, nationally. What does it look like? Um, there were several different steps that happened throughout the course of the next year. But um, the following year, I went back to that women's retreat and actually gave my first presentation on human trafficking identification and response. So it started there. So we've been doing this now about eight years. Um, and throughout the, the process of, you know, uh, finding out what this was, we decided, my, my friends and I, we were like, well, where are the gaps in services? And quite honestly, they're everywhere, you know, but we're thinking, okay, well, where did God call us to fit in? Where, where are we supposed to be? Um, and really we felt like it was to open up a home for children who've been trafficked or sexually exploited in the foster care system. Um. So we started an organization, Restoration Place, and through that process, um, didn't quite reach our goals, but we had become a referral service. So we got calls from victims, family members, agencies looking for different resources in their area, um, and that could be globally. You know, we, we'd gotten a call from, you know, Sierra Leone. I mean, we had gotten, you know, wow. calls from right down the street. So it was um, very empowering to know that we could sort of be like the little hub of this wheel and sort of, you know send out, um, individuals and families, you know, agencies to different resources to get what they needed. Um, and from time to time we provided transportation for direct rescue. Um, so that was extremely rewarding. Um, we also became one of the most uh, requested services for human trafficking training here in Michigan. So nice. um, the, you know, the state mandate came out in 2018. And when that happened, we already had the program in place. Um, so we got it accredited and we just rolled with it. <laughs> we were like, yeah. okay, we're on it. We're already doing this. So let's just go. Um, so that has been amazing. And that part has stuck really well. Um, we've done uh, really great and, and that has branched out nationally. So, um, it's been really neat. So to become a subject matter expert, I, I actually, I did finish my, my bachelor's in social work. Um, I worked 
in Flint doing home visits for about a year, uh, it was not for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I think one of, the, one of the biggest things to realize when you're in social work or something like in a helping profession is to know where you don't fit. Right. Um, and that right. was certainly a place that I did not fit. So um, I thought I really need to work on the macro level on you know, program development and uh, research and that kind of thing. So I went back to school. I got my master's in public administration. Um, I'm currently working on a PhD in psychology um, with an emphasis on dissociative disorder. So by the time I'm done with, you know, my PhD, that is my field of practice is dissociative disorders. So um, it's very, very rewarding because we know most traumatized victims have some sort of dissociative state um, while being traumatized. So uh, many of the, the, the victims or survivors coming out of trafficking um, deal with dissociation and, um, and, and the effects of that. So, and that can really impede the healing process, but, um, so that's kind of so, how I became an expert. So <laughs> that, well, thank you. That's awesome. I, <laughs> I knew you were working on some of your degrees. I just, yeah. I didn't remember exactly which ones, but that's very cool. So yeah. just for those of us that are not as familiar, just <laughs> give a little definition, explain dissociative disorders. Yeah, so um, dissociative disorders is kind of on a spectrum uh, along with PTSD or complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So um, during trauma, oftentimes people dissociate or what we would call sort of the, the separation of the mind, the psyche from the physical body or the the the, the sense of present awareness. Um, so if you've ever heard somebody tell their story from, you know, I was floating on the ceiling watching it happen to me. You know, I was across the room watching it happen to me. Oftentimes that's part of a dissociative process. Um, and it can be anywhere from like depersonalization. So that's the, the, the actual separation, right. Of the, the psyche, the mind from the physical body, um, derealization. So feeling like the world around you is kind of distorted, um, feeling like things are not quite real. Um, so there are, are varying degrees of dissociation. The most extreme dissociation is dissociative identity disorder, which is, it used to be called multiple personality disorder. Um, so dissociative identity disorder or DID, um, is the most extreme form, but it occurs most often in children who have been through long-term prolonged, right, or severe trauma. Um, and what happens is during the traumatic experience and the dissociative process happens, right, and the, the mind, the psyche separates from the physical awareness, um, those memories, those implicit encodings of what's happening get downloaded somewhere else. They don't get integrated into conscious awareness. They don't get integrated into even mm -hmm. unconscious awareness because unconscious and implicit sort of mean the same thing, but the wiring is different. So when we talk about those who have dissociative identity disorder, a lot of those memories, those, um, those personalities, those alters, um, come out of that trauma, right? They're, they're born out of trauma. Um, so they have different ages, different memories, different personality states, because we know as we develop, personality develops based on our DNA and our environment. So it's not nature mm. versus nurture, but nature needs nurture. Right? So right. Um, those things together work to develop our personality. Well, it's the same thing with DID. When you've got a split, when you've got a fragmentation and, and um, dissociation and you've got a new uh, personality state, it's going to take on whatever 
trauma has occurred, whatever events have occurred, that's what develops that personality. So it's most often completely different from the core personality or the other personalities and the different alters. Um, so you could have many of different ages and names and, um, you know, even hobbies and allergies and medical conditions. Some Seriously. can read, some can't. Yes. Um, so it's a very, so I said, this is sort of my playground. This is, you know, you know, between neurobiology and the, the way the psyche, the mind works and how it all plays together, mm-hmm. you know, um, is just very interesting. And especially when it comes to those who've been through trauma, those who have experienced this. And sometimes you'll see a lot of um, survivors come out of trauma who, you know, either have no recollection of it or they're completely so separate from it, you know, oh, it's fine. It didn't happen to me. Or, you know, it's very much minimized because that dissociative process, it's a survival mechanism. It is an absolute defense mechanism. It is built into every single one of us. Um, And depending on the trauma and how our, our psyche responds is, you know, if we develop this extreme form of dissociation. Um, So, yeah, so healing that part of the self when it comes Mm -hmm. to dissociation is often different or more intense and much more long-term than someone who has been diagnosed with maybe PTSD Mm -hmm. um, or just PT. I don't want to say just PTSD, but you know what I mean? Um, So, and often those with DID also have PTSD. That's part of the process, but um, yeah. So that's kind of, I don't know. What was the question? (laughs) No, (laughs) No, that's good. That's really good. No, but I do have a couple of questions about that. Um, so if someone has DID, mm-hmm. do they realize this? Uh, so I guess a couple of questions, like, does that person realize that they, that they have experienced, that, that they have this thing going on where they've disassociated, disassoci- disassociated to such an mm-hmm. extreme that there's like this other personality. So do they realize it? But also is how would someone else know that? So, yeah, so not, um, not everyone is aware that they have alters, that they have dissociative identity disorder. Um, traditionally, I think historically, we've seen people who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder, borderline personality, um, schizophrenia. By the way, schizophrenia originally meant the splitting of just so you know. Um, <laughs> but a lot of the, the same uh, diagnostic criteria is, is the same for dissociative disorders as well as schizophrenia and bipolar and borderline. Um, so often people are misdiagnosed with these other things. So they just think they have, you know, sudden shifts in mood um, and that's, you know, bipolar or, you know what I'm saying? So, um, or they have hallucinations, auditory or visual hallucinations, part of the deep realization process, um, and they're labeled schizophrenic. So it really does take a process sometimes to realize that there's something else going on. Um, the, the two main criteria for dissociative identity disorder is one is dissociative amnesia, um, where there's a loss of, of time. Um, and sometimes it's during present day. So um, for instance, if, a, if an alter or a part comes to, um, comes to present, right, if they, if they front um, and the core person sort of goes behind um, or disappears, there will be lost time. You know? So if, if you've got a part that's normally the, 
the housekeeper, you know, the one that takes care of the kids and does the shopping and all this stuff. And they went out and did the grocery shopping and all of these things or whatever. And then all of a sudden, um, you sort of come to and realize that you've got a house full of groceries <laughs> and uh, you have no idea where they came from. Right. Um, and you've lost the last three hours. That's a pretty clear indication something's going on. Um, there are some people who are like me, who are what we call co-conscious, who where the an altar apart will front. Um, the core person sort of steps behind the glass and you can hear and see and experience everything that's happening, but you have no control over it. Um, sometimes that does come with, um, again, some dissociative amnesia. Um, but it, it almost becomes, you become sort of in really, um, sort of, we call it like a fuzzy, foggy kind of state where, you know, something's going on, Mm -hmm. um, but you just can't control what's happening. Um, I didn't realize that I had DID, um, until I, well, I'll back up just a little bit. Um, when I first started giving my presentations back in 2012, um, mm-hmm. I threw in my own story. I started telling right. my own story. My, you know, my father was arrested, went to jail when I was 13, um, was put into the foster care system after that, you know, so there was a series of just really crappy events throughout childhood, right? My mom died when I was two. So it was just like, oh, wow. um, this perfect storm, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started telling my story and I am one who is not emotional. I don't cry. I don't get angry. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't have extreme ups and downs. I'm just kind of even. And, um, I started telling my story and a couple of years into it, I started getting all weepy <laughs> when I was like oh. up there in front of people. And I was like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> like, this isn't me. Uh, so it took a couple of years, but I thought, well, maybe I should go to a therapist. Maybe I should just go, you know, I had a list of like, you know, okay, this is what we need to work on. I've got like six months. I need some tips <laughs> and tricks <laughs> to get me through. These Let's seminars. get this done. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm like, I'm a little OCD. I check off lists. I'm, you know, um, so I went in there and, you know, here we are like five years later. Um, it was, it was sort of this process of digging into, okay, well, what happened? And I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, I don't remember most of my childhood. I've got bits and pieces from here and there and here and there. Um, but when sort of the, the window started to open a little bit to the memories that I did have and what was missing all of a sudden, um, I had altars. I had parts that oh. were coming out that I had no idea were there. Um, and sometimes my therapist will tell me later, hey, this is who was here and this is what she said. Um, oh, you wow. know, so let's process this. Let's get everybody on the same page, so to speak. And uh, so I didn't know. You know, all I knew is I was oh. very um, sort of rote. And what I did my whole life was just very non emotional. Um, I did everything by the book. I had lists. I ran businesses and I did, I did not have emotion attached to much of anything. Um, because all of these different parts, these altars were holding onto them, right? They, they mm-hmm. held onto the trauma. They held onto the, you know, when you don't experience, um, the dark, you don't experience joy. You know, there's, there's, right. there's gotta be a balance of these things. And, um, uh, oftentimes those with dissociative disorders have a blunting, have a, a diminished capacity to experience happiness and joy, um, elation, you know? Uh, mm. so when people are like, I'm so overjoyed and I'm like, that's cool. You know, uh, mm, right. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> but, um, so some people know that there's something off, that there's something, um, 
you know, have gone wrong. They're missing big chunks of time. Um, most people don't realize that it's DID. So um, the, the data says about one and a half percent of the population at this point has dissociative identity disorder. So you're talking nearly five million people in this country um, have wow. DID. And yeah, and it's such a... <sighs> it's such a controversial diagnosis that nobody wants to talk about it um, right. because it's scary, something we don't understand. So it's, you know, it's, you know, something we fear. Um, and oftentimes it gets perpetrated in movies like splits and Norman Bates and all of these awful things. And I'm like, there are not 5 million people murdering their therapists, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> it's just not how it goes. But, but DID, at the very core of it is a defense mechanism. It is survival. That is how we make it. That is how I was able to raise my kids and go through school and run businesses was because I was protected. My, my mind literally protected me from all the crap in mm. childhood so that I could develop at least as close to typical as possible. Um, yeah, so some people know, some people don't um, realize there are people... Uh, so family members, friends who are around generally don't know or understand DID, um, even if they're told about it. So I've told a few friends, I will tell a stranger all the live long day, but to tell family is a big no. Um, uh -oh. It's something that they don't understand. So it's something that they fear and the rejection from family is a whole lot more than it would be from a stranger, you mm -hmm. know? So to risk telling a stranger is nothing but to risk telling family is, is huge. And that's what we often find with DID. Um, we also find a lot of times those who have developed DID, their main perpetrator was family. So, you know, their core yeah. support system is often their, their perpetrators. So, um, so having people around that understand DID and know DID just is it really a thing with the DID community? Um, some people have some support systems. I have found the most support from actual Facebook groups mm. and friends. Um, and, and some of it's kind of, you know, you're like, oh, how did that happen? You know, because it's, it's a very odd thing. <laughs> so right. when you right. don't experience it or don't understand it. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so for friends and family to understand is, is really difficult. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and you, like you said, most people that know them don't necessarily have any idea right. what's going on. So that, that would be, that doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. Right. It really doesn't. Right. Because that supports us that you need. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Um, so you talk about this is just so interesting because I, I don't know much of anything about it. And, and I think there are so many people that really, there are a lot of misconceptions. Um, mm -hmm. And do you see this? So you talk a lot about human trafficking. Do you see this as a, not a common result, but you know, you're talking about one point, would you say 1.5% of the population? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is what's, what's that correlation? between like trafficking survivors or intimate partner abuse or childhood? Do you, do you know? Yeah. Well so those? we don't have a, 
we don't have a good research number to put on it. But what we do know is because DID is um, most often associated with early childhood trauma. So it's Mm. usually we're talking about children who were abused um, long-term before the age of nine or 10, uh, where the splitting has occurred. Um, And we also know with those who've been trafficked, one of the biggest vulnerabilities that we look for um, or that we know one of the biggest indicators is early childhood sexual abuse. Right. Um, so when we talk about, so there's a relationship there, it may not be a cause and effect, there's a relationship there that we can't really ignore. Um, the survivors that we have worked with, I can see it. So when I pick them up, there, there's an absolute separation between the activities that they do and the way that they think and the way they interact with certain groups of people. Um, that indicates to me, okay, there's, there's a level of thinking here that just isn't, um, it isn't integrated. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. It's not linear. It doesn't go from point A to point B to C, right? So we're all over the map. Um, and that's often characteristic of, of dissociative disorders. Um, but one of the most interesting things I found was, um, in fact, the last conference I saw you, I think it was the just conference. Yeah. Was it the Cincinnati? I think it was, um, and I taught a class and in the, in the bio, in my um, description, it talked about, hey, we're going to talk about DID. We're going to talk about dissociative identity disorder. And about half of that class that showed up had DID. Oh, so wow. When you're, yeah. So when you're talking about those, you know, we're kind of hiding in the shadows until somebody says, hey, I've got it too. Or it's okay. You know, and somebody came up to me after the, after the session and they said, you know what? I'm a lawyer because I have DID. The oh only my. reason I made it is because I have DID. Because DID is a protective mechanism. Right. Um, so, you know, but the, the relationship between human trafficking survivors and dissociative disorders is huge because that is trauma over right. and over and over again. And you cannot exist in a traumatized state um, without the body shutting down from the inside out, without some sort of protective mechanism. Um, going on mentally. So, and that's often the dissociative process. So it may not be as extreme as the idea as dissociative identity disorder, but we're, we are often talking about depersonalization, derealization, um, not having a linear or logical, um, sense of awareness or thinking or, um, communicating. Right. Right. So, um, one of the really cool things that we're working on right now is a way to communicate because oftentimes when alters come to present, especially if they're little, Mm -hmm. um, the part of the brain that actually controls communication, controls language shuts down. Um, it doesn't work. Yeah. So when we, when we talk about sort of mutism, um, or this, this, uh, what we call in the scientific community, this autonomic blunting. Um, but during dissociative episodes, the, the body will actually start to shut down. So your skin conductancy, the way your skin conducts, uh, electricity, your blood pressure, your heart rate, all of these things decrease. Seriously. Um, seriously. And I become really, really cold. So your temperature drops. Um, but also because when you're in a dissociative state, oftentimes you're, you're reliving that, um, that traumatic experience. And during trauma, your language center doesn't work. Your right. focus area right. of your brain isn't working. So you're kind of shoved back into the space where you have no words to describe what's happening to you, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally. There's just nothing there. So, so one of the really cool things that we're trying to, to, to mitigate is how do we help those who dissociate so much communicate with their mental health professionals in a way that makes sense, that's logical, that's linear, that can facilitate healing. So. 
Wow. It's, yeah. And how is that going? I mean, are there, are, <laughs> are <laughs> I, I hear the issue and I'm thinking, dang, how do you do that? Are, I mean, are, is there progress being made here? Um, well, the only thing, what I've done is um, looked up every possible communication tool that I can possibly find. I'm like, okay, what do we have? We have these little charts that have smiley faces and sad faces and what we're feeling emotionally and all of this stuff. And I'm like, it doesn't even come close mm. to being able to, you know, put a story together, to put, right. you know, um, you know, the narrative with what's happening. So um, my therapist and I came up with a couple years ago, this postcard system. And we have a stack of postcards and they have either a body sensation, um, an emotion, uh, a place, a person. Um, so whether, you know, it's in a bedroom or a kitchen or a city or a car or, you know, was it father? Was it stepmother? Was it, um, are, is your head fuzzy? Do you have a headache? You know, all of these different things. And all of them, of course, pertain to, to us. Right. Um, so we've sort of developed our own little system, but I'm really working on expanding that so that people can actually um, choose what they what applies to them, put it in some sort of like flip chart or some sort of you know, quick reference book to pull out the cards that that they're experiencing in the moment. And then mm -hmm. the therapist can go, okay, so this is the story. Tell me where this begins. What are, you know, what are we looking at here? Um, and just with simple yes and no's, you know, or, or nods of the head, we can sort of put together the narrative. And then when that starts to happen, it starts to sort of break free. Um, oh, nice in your mind, you know, mm -hmm. that you can start to tell a little tiny pieces at a time. Well, it smelled. Well, how did it smell? Right. Did it smell like this? Did it smell like that? So we can start to put together some pieces. Um, so we're in the very beginning processes of that, but that is something I'm definitely working on. And by the end of my PhD, we'll have, you know, completed. Um, wow. So because it's such a, it's such a difficult thing. You're talking about generally people who have DID are in therapy for a lifetime. It's just how it goes because the healing really? process is just forever. Mm -hmm. um, when you're dealing with several different personalities, all of them are trying to heal. <laughs> you know, so Right, right. It, and I mean, yeah. it's hard enough for one. Like <laughs> Exactly, oh. exactly. So, um, so yeah, but we figured this could be a really, uh, really useful tool for anybody who's been through trauma and especially children, you know, even, you know, kids with mm -hmm. autism. And I know we have communication, you know, things for that as well, but I think something a little more detailed, something that they can actually, um, be interactive with, mm -hmm. um, would be really helpful. So oh, that's we're incredible. not there yet, but I'm working on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, maybe we'll see each other at a conference and you'll be done with your PhD and you can, like, <laughs> it, it'll be done. That's, when the world goes back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is very cool. That's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just so, so interesting to hear and the, the way the brain functions during trauma, mm -hmm. during, during any situation that is life-threatening and interesting to hear how it can blockade to protect the, the core personality. That's mm -hmm. Absolutely. Incredible. Yeah. Um, so what are some, you've kind of hit on a couple common myths, but what are some common myths associated with dissociative order? And what, what do you wish people really just understood better? Um, 
Well, I think I'll start with the, the, the last one first, but I think I wish people understood um, that it is a defense mechanism, that it is a naturally occurring process to abnormal um, adverse events. Right. It is something that happens naturally. It's not something that's made up in a laboratory or, mm. you know, um, forced on to clients by therapists or, you know, um, this is something that, that God has sort of put in all of us right. to help us survive so that mm-hmm. we can function as human beings. Um, so some of the common myths, um, that I would say one of them, um, I, I grew up in a very, um, sort of fundamentalist Baptist environment kind of thing on one end. I had, you know, my grandparents on one end and um, loved them to pieces. Um, But there was sort of this overshadowing, you know, absolute, you know, good and evil. Mm. um, And that those who present with dissociative identity disorder are in some way possessed. Like these are evil spirits. These are um, somehow, you know, not part of the natural world and don't belong here. And we need to eradicate this and that kind of thing. It just needs lots of prayer. (laughs) So so that's a huge myth. Um, I think another one is that everybody has what they call persecutor altars. Um, some people mm. do. Persecutors are uh, what we often see in the, in Hollywood. It's mm. what we see coming out of the movies and shows, you know, where you've got an altar or two that show up who are evil, who want to kill people. And um, most of the time, um, about 30% of those who have DID have a persecutor. Most of the okay. time they're persecuting themselves. The persecutor was set up, you know, all altars and parts were actually created for a role. They were created for a purpose. Um, Sometimes they're a protector. Sometimes they hold all the emotional trauma that's happened. Sometimes they're what we call, um, they're called otherwise normal parts. (laughs) Oh, interesting. um, You're normal to everybody, right? So you've got AMPs, you've got EPs, emotional parts. Um, You have persecutors. Persecutors are often set up to... Um, prevent the person from telling the story, mm. right? So they often take the side of the of the perpetrator, um, you know, to sort of protect the entire system from going into chaos. Mm. They oftentimes start out as what we call a protector, you know, so they want to really protect the system, but it goes awry somewhere and they become a persecutor. And oftentimes this is where we see people who are cutting, who uh-huh. um, end up in substance abuse, you know, so they're, they're actually, it's, it's a persecution of the self, not of others. Um, so it's not something that, you know, uh, we don't see stuff like split and, you know, Norman Bates and all of that stuff really right. happening when it comes to DID. Um, most of our mass murderers and our serial killers, um, have, you know, uh, avoidant attachment issues. <laughs> Not necessarily uh, DID. So they just lack that, you know, sense of moral compass and empathy. Um, mm-hmm. They have no sense of connection to human beings. So, um, but that's not DID. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah. So I think those are some of the myths. I think another myth is that it's rare and it's not um, rare. So right. I, we have, um, it's been documented, you know, as far back as the 16th century, you know, and I'm sure we can document way back, you know, even into to biblical times. Um, it's just been called different things throughout the years and, you know, attributed to different things. It wasn't until like the 90s where we call the, it was the, um, the decade of the brain is what we call it. Because now we have, really? you know, functional MRIs. Yeah, we've got yes. all of these things that can track the mapping of the brain. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, well, what happens during this part? And what happens? 
happens during this part. And what we know during, you know, um, during trauma and the development of DID is that the integrative function of the brain, so my ability to integrate implicit or unconscious memory into conscious or explicit memory doesn't work. Mm. So Okay. My hippocampus is shut down, right? Mm-hmm. So, and right. there are parts of the brain that just don't function um, as a typical occurring person would have their brain function. You know, there's parts that are diminished. There's the corpus callosum that communicates from left to right. That's diminished. So we have diminished communication. So, um, yeah. so it wasn't really until the 90s where we thought, okay, well, maybe this, you know, multiple personality thing, this DID thing is really happening. Now we've got some proof. Now we've right. got some science to back up the, the theories. Um, and it's just a, it's a fascinating world to sort of dive into and, and realize, okay, this phenomena is, um, truly amazing, you know, and happening personally. So it makes it even more <laughs> like, what is going on? <laughs> right. right. So, and I think sure. that was sort of the, the, the pull into this was, you know, I want to know what's happening to me personally, you know, right. Again, I'm a research nerd. So I'm like, if I need to fix this, I need to know what it is. You know, what are we mm-hmm. dealing with here? How do we, how do we mitigate this? How do we, you know, figure out how to, how to work together and not let the four-year-old part drive. So that yeah. was sort of, the, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and what an amazing, I mean, an amazing journey for you to kind of just get a better understanding of what's been happening in your life. But the fact that you're able to dig in and that you're a nerd and you're yeah. digging into the research <laughs> to help other people and mm. I mean, I'm just, I'm so excited to hear how things go with your PhD and this communication piece mm-hmm. that it is so essential and just kind of, and I love that like once the story is a little bit there, then the healing can actually happen. So mm-hmm. I hope that, I hope that, that your PhD just goes beautifully and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited to hear how how that works and the communication things that you come up with. But thank you so much for being with us today. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Really shedding <laughs> some light on some myths and some misunderstandings that probably I, I've had and <laughs> that I'm sure some of our listeners and viewers have had. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I'm you, just really, um, it was so cool to just, you know, sort of lay it all out there and talk about it. So I really appreciate the opportunity to do that. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. And for those of you that are watching and listening, thank you for joining us for this impact conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and would like information about upcoming impact conversations or have a suggestion for a future guest, you can subscribe, join, and nominate by clicking the link below. Thank you again for joining us and keep looking for ways to positively impact our world. Don't forget to subscribe and join us next week for another Impact Conversation.